Hello and welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. The Olympics is a time when teamwork is put to the full ultimate test in events like hockey, skiing and snowboarding. And this year, eyes from around the world will be on Beijing and not just because of these sporting events. The winter 2022 Olympics bring questions around surveillance with reports that the app that athletes are expected to download to their phones could in fact be monitoring them. And there has also been speculation about whether Russia will invade Ukraine during the games or hold off for uh, various political reasons, as well as uh, this is the first Winter Olympics with 100% artificial snow, which leads to the larger discussion of climate change and the future of winter sports. And with the Beijing Winter Olympics now underway as of February 4th, we're chatting with several scholars about the Olympics beyond the spectacle of sport today. In our first segment, we're chatting now with Dr. David Murakami-Wood, Director of Surveillance Studies Center here at Queen's University, about questions of surveillance at this year's Olympics. Again, welcome back, David. Thanks, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. So I understand that any attendee to the Olympics in Beijing must download and use some app called the My 2022 app. Tell us more about this app and why athletes are required to use it. Well, in theory, this is partly about, at least about COVID. I mean, um, China has a so-called zero COVID policy right now. Um, athletes have had to be tested, at least had to test negative at least twice before they even board a flight to come to Beijing. And this app is supposed to essentially be a whereabouts app that allows them to tell where athletes are and also track their COVID status, amongst other things. Of course, it's the other things that people have now become very concerned about. Um, I mean, one of the reasons you know, why it has other potentials, I suspect, is that the app itself is not something that has been created especially for you know, foreign athletes at these games. It's probably built on the basis of other tracking apps that China uses. And both for the COVID, but for other reasons. Um, if, for example, it's been found in the code of this app that it has a list of banned words um, that you know, you're not allowed to be used on texts or other kinds of you know, systems. And that, that shows that it's actually part of a different, you know, a different set of earlier and pre-existing uh, kind of rules that have nothing really to do with the Olympics at all. So you know, part of this is about the fact that app is itself is not, you know, not, not disconnected from other security priorities that China has. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, it's also just quickly and not particularly well constructed. And this is true of many you know, apps that are created for things like the games. So there are fundamental security flaws with the app, which allow people, um, could allow people, hackers, <clears throat> or, or of course, the state to um, download all kinds of useful information about contacts um, and personal data from the app itself or through the app itself. Okay. So now I wonder if there is a relationship between the development and implementation of this app and also international political concerns, including those related to Chinese governance, human rights in China itself, and uh, calls for boycotts and so forth. Well, the security around the games is, is pretty much, you know, designed to... Uh, restrict any kind of political demonstration or political speech even. And we saw this as well with the previous summer games at the Olympics in 2008. I mean, there was apps, it was, it was declared that there would be no um, political demonstration allowed of any kind. Um, and of course, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is only too willing to comply with this. They've uh, you know, long been uncomfortable about 
demonstrations of politics at games. You can go right back to 1968 and the famous, you know, black glove salute of, of American sprinters, um, American black athletes, you know, protesting for civil rights mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, and the IOC, you know, as, as we know, was incredibly embarrassed by this kind of thing. They don't like politics being part of the games. Um, and that's partly at least because the games themselves have always pandered to dictators. They've always pandered to authoritarians. Um, and they've never really taken a stance in favor of human rights or anything else. They have a vague promise of peace, this you know, supposed treaty that's supposed to exist you know, during the games when nobody was, nobody's supposed to start a war. But apart from that, the games are not really anything that's ever supported free speech or human rights. And of course, in the specific case now, we've got a really dangerous situation where um, as part of Xi uh, Jinping's policies, uh, you know, towards a one China, which is one of the major, you know, drives of his rule. Well, we've seen crackdowns in, in Xinjiang, we've seen on the Uyghur people, which is also ongoing, um, and which are hotly denied, of course, by China. And the, of course, the mm -hmm. ongoing situation in Tibet and the situation with Taiwan, both of which are, you know, are sort of powder kegs uh, at all times. So, you know, they, they didn't want any embarrassment. So there's, there's very specific reasons why particular kinds of speech is prohibited, particular kinds of demonstrations are prohibited here. Um, Let's not forget, though, this isn't just about the athletes. You know, it's the, a lot of the attention around this app has been on, you know, can the athletes' information be compromised? Is it the athletes' freedom of speech that's being targeted? Most of what's going on with security around the games is targeted at Chinese people and, and inter, you know, people within China, further restricting their rights and controlling their movement. There's been reports, for example, mm -hmm. that people's um, cars are being searched, you know, miles and miles away from any of the venues, like 260, 270 miles away. Um, you know, they're, they're really kind of restricting how people can move around in relation to the games. Very much concerned about internal dissent as much as they are concerned about athletes making, you know, a political statement or anything like that. So you mentioned uh, some past uh, Olympics and uh, crackdowns on protests, and there and there have been many mm -hmm. over many decades. The Tlaite Loco massacre yeah. in Mexico City back in 1968, of course, Munich in 72, there was an act of terrorism there, as well as Atlanta more recently, mm -hmm. I guess, in 1996. Uh, so with the idea of protests that could possibly under be become um, a reality during the Beijing Olympics, potentially. Uh, is that a possibility? And are there actual security threats related to terrorism in your mind for the Beijing Olympics as well? Well, yes, you're right to point that out. I mean, in some ways, the Mexico City example was the thing that really kicked off the modern concern about um, attacks and terrorism related to the games. Um, and the, the first real Olympic games that actually put those kind of... Uh, plans to prevent terrorist attacks into, proto in, into um, practice was Montreal, actually, in Canada. We were the first one. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why Montreal was such an expensive games, well, not the only one, as we know, there's a lot of corruption and other things that happened. <laughs> but, you know, Montreal was actually the first modern games to really start to take um, security seriously. And the IOC has gradually grown its security agenda to the point where it now has a permanent security office. And they, and they actually impose security duties on every single city that hosts any Olympic related event. So a lot of this stuff, one of the interesting things is a lot of the things that happen about in terms of security at the Olympics are not actually the initiative of the particular city or particular country. They're things that are required by the IOC. And this is why mm -hmm. the security in London, security in Beijing, security in Tokyo, 
when it comes down to it, are actually so similar. And there's a lot more similarities and differences between the kind of security measures that are undertaken by um, host cities. And that's because the IOC insists on um, certain kinds of security. So I um, spent some time in 2019 examining the preparations for the Tokyo Olympics that was supposed to then take place in 2020. And you see all the usual, right. the same sorts of things <clears throat> taking place. There's a you know, massive clearance of the areas around the venues where police are constantly patrolling, um, constantly being swept for devices. There's uh, live sort of gaming exercises where they go out and they simulate particular kind of situations that could occur. When I was visiting one of the venues, there was a, a biological warfare simulation going on. Um, Ironically, though, with all the security preparations that took place um, with the Tokyo Games, guess what the one thing was that they didn't predict? What? Pandemic. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Of so, you know, so that, you know <laughs> they, they had everything, you know, lockdown, everything that could possibly happen, earthquakes, typhoons, you know, uh, you know, volcanic eruptions, biological warfare, terrorist attacks. They had not predicted or even thought about the possibility of a pandemic. So, you know, the, this is the usual thing. You can be as, as prepared as you like, security can be as tight as you like, but the thing that's gonna happen is probably gonna be the thing that you don't expect anyway. And as for terrorism, I think that's probably the least likely thing to be a possibility in the Chinese case. I mean, just as it was in Japan, right? Japan had almost no possibility of, of terrorism being a threat to the Olympic games. And nevertheless, they prepared for it. Beijing probably, even less of a threat, simply because the country is so under control, so tightly secured, um, that you know the most you might get is is you know a sort of individual protest or a couple of people. But terrorism, I mean, China doesn't even have any inter internal terrorist groups worth talking about, and there certainly isn't the threat of sort of international terrorism. Uh, it'd be almost impossible for anybody to get anywhere near the gates. Thank you so much, David. We've been chatting with David Murakami Wood about some of the security and surveillance implications surrounding the 2022 Beijing Olympics now underway. Thanks again for returning to CFRC and chatting with us today. Okay, nice to talk to you again. back to Campus Beat. In our next segment, we're chatting with Professor John Small in the Department of Biology about the use of artificial snow at the Beijing Olympics and what this usage suggests about climate change and the future of winter sports. Thanks for joining us and welcome back to CFRC, John. Oh, I'm happy to be back. Thank you so much. All right. So there's been quite a lot of buzz in the media about the reliance on artificial snow this year at Changchiaku, an agricultural region in the Yin Mountains just outside of Beijing, where Olympic skiing and snowboarding events are taking place. Why the reliance on artificial snow? Yes, well, it's just another symptom of greenhouse warming that we're all experiencing. And uh, I think, you know, the Olympics is sort of brings it to the headlines. But I think a lot of sort of regular people who aren't, <laughs> you know, Olympic athletes are suffering from, you know, we're suffering from all sorts of aspects of climate warming, but this is just one of the symptoms. I, I look at it as, a, you know, the uh, 
the timing of snow and the type of snow uh, and the melting of snow obviously is going to be affected by climate. Uh, another major factor uh, that we don't see so much in the Olympics because they always use artificial ice, but it's ice, uh, ice of course is declining. I work on lakes and lake ice is a very critical component of the environmental situation. But the, I look more at the, uh, you know, the, I like the Olympics, I guess like anyone else, but uh, I, look at the more the, I, I look at it more in the broader sense of how this affects average people. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, people like going skiing in a hill where they probably don't even have to pay for it, but they won't be able to do that now. Uh, local economies are being hit by the same thing. Um, a study by UBC showed that many uh, uh, snow hills just, you know, economic, you know, resorts just will have to close down. They just won't have the, the snowpack. And of course, it costs money to do artificial snow. Uh, many uh, resorts in the Alps are closing in winter because they just don't have the, the clientele because the ice conditions aren't, aren't uh, the snow conditions aren't right. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also goes on with lake ice, I mean, you know, uh, or ice in your backyard. Again, this is sort of shifting a little away from the Olympics, but it does highlight it. Uh, you know, I mean, a good example is the great one, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, you know, he constantly refers to how his father made the rink in the backyard near Brantford House, um, Brantford, Ontario House. I mean, it's getting much, much harder and harder. You need several days of freezing and certain temperatures to have even a rink in your backyard, let alone all those people that learn how to skate and play hockey on, um, on lake ice or pond ice, that's gone. Uh, so it's all these indirect effects and in overall uh, recreation athletics, and in some ways, you know, mental and physical health uh, that are just all parts of, of this issue. So I think it's highlighted now at the Olympics and talking, you know, we don't have enough sort of, it's happened in the last Olympics too. Um, and, you know, this is, this is the future. I mean, we're, you know, we're losing ice, we're losing the type of snow we want when we want it. Um, I mean, and this just goes on even to local economies. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, ski resorts is one thing, but uh, just take ice fishing. Well, you know, several people like ice fishing. Uh, mm -hmm. It's kind of seen as a sport. Um, in uh, There was one study just in Lake Winnipeg, the ice fishing industry is about $200 million a year. Now that's a significant, you know, significant part of local economies uh, that is disappearing if you can't, you know, safely go on the ice to go ice fishing. So. These are just all the sort of the indirect things that we often don't think about. Uh, and it's, it's got to do with local economies, broader economies. It's got to do with physical health, mental health issues, people just having fun, <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe we're losing our future Olympic athletes just simply because they can't, uh, they don't get the bug when they're, you know, six or seven years old. Uh, by, you know, skating on the rink in their backyard. And what might the, I guess, what are the environmental impacts of the snow creation? <laughs> yeah, uh, again, you know, the ideal is to use natural snow. <laughs> it's natural precipitation and, uh, and you don't need energy to make it. Uh, there's quite, a, you know, this energy has to be used. You're probably using greenhouse gases to make the artificial snow because you've lost the snow because of warming, because of greenhouse gases. So I think, again, it just shows you how everything's interconnected. Now, uh, the ins and outs of, of making artificial snow is outside my uh, pay grade, let's say. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but it just is another example of it. snow falling for recreation is what we call an ecosystem service. It's, you know, it's out there. If, it, if you lose that service, you have to make it up somehow. And by making it up, it costs money and it's costing probably more, depending unless you're using totally renewable energy, which I doubt it, uh, if it's, um, it's costing energy and it's, it's contributing to the problem. So it just shows you how everything's interconnected.
Okay. All right. And now thinking globally, if we can, China might be the first to create 100% of the snow for this year's Olympics. But I understand Russia manufactured 85% of the snow for Sochi in 2014. And then South Korea did uh, 90% of artificial snow for Pyeongchang in 2018. So these are fairly troubling trends that I'm sure you've been paying attention to as well. What questions do they raise for scientists like you? And what research is being done to confront environmental change resulting from this kind like sport or this kind of human activity? Yeah, usually the research on on sport activity is the economic recreational uh, repercussions. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you know to me it's 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 something that the public sees and I think that's important. Uh, there's a lot of things happening with climate change the public never sees and it's serious. I mean it's very serious. Uh, uh, you know people say well I've got, there's less lake ice and so I have a longer summer. But you know you might also be wondering why you might be getting blue green algal blooms in August and September and that's probably because it's a longer summer because there's less lake ice. It's all interconnected. So I think uh, this this sort of brings it, you know, it makes headlines when it's Olympics and it's in this and you see the trend of, uh, you know, there's just not enough snow out there. Uh, And if they were doing, uh, you know, the ice ice things were using natural ice, that'd be even a bigger problem. They'd all be artificial ice by now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it just shows you that it's that trend going in that direction. Uh, So I think it it shows that uh, um, whereas, you know, one Olympics on an environmental global perspective isn't a, a major a major part, if you think of it globally, it does show uh, what's happening locally. And again, I go back to, you know, you can't go on your local ski hill. That, and for some people that, you know, they don't have the money to go to an artificial ski hill and they don't have the money to go uh, to an artificial rink even, which costs money, you know, if it's, uh, uh, if it's an artificial ice rink. Um, you know, they learn their hockey in their backyards. They learn their hockey or figure skate, or at least they got the bug to do it. Uh, in their backyard, on the frozen pond, on the frozen swamp, on the frozen lake. And if all that's disappearing, uh, you're losing that as well. So I look at more uh, sort of a harbinger of what's, you know, what's, what's actually coming. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think, uh, so I, I think the Olympics brings it to the front page. But, you know, we've been talking about these issues every day for years now. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So what's your prognosis then for Milano Cortina in Italy in 2026, let alone the future <laughs> of winter sports in general, John? Well, I think it's, I think winter sports in general, at least in the natural setting are in most, because most people uh, live in areas not far, far north. They live in, uh, you know, where we live sort of in Kingston on the transition in these temperate regions. I think uh, outdoor sports uh, are, de- are going to be declining um, unless, you know, you have the facilities to go to a snow making mountain or an indoor rink. Uh, I think we're, you know, we're in the, certainly in, in rural areas or less populated areas uh, that th- those options are going to be decreasing steadily. And mm. uh, it's just w- one more of the symptoms of climate warming. And, you know, it's, and, 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 you know, for some, for some people, lack of ice is, is even far more critical. The ice roads in the Arctic or subarctic, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Northern peoples are on the front line of climate change. They're there, the lake ice or the or the ocean ice or sea ice or river ice is their highways in winter. Um, they, you know, it's very hard to get around. And they, if that ice becomes unsafe, uh, they can't even get their goods or their transport done. So for some people, it's not even recreation. It's their livelihood uh, is mm-hmm. based on, on this declining ice. But it sounds like a, a vicious circle as well, because the, re- the, the increasing reliance on artificial snow 
but also the environmental impacts of the creation of that environmental yeah. snow. That no, it's they, a circular. They, no, yeah, yeah. The, the amount of water that they're pumping out of the, of the already strained water resources amounted to about 800 Olympic-sized pools uh, for uh, this particular Olympic Games event happening in uh, in China for uh, right now. But uh, there's already very little water in the water table period. But then, of course, there are concerns about what happens with some of that water when it evaporates in the spraying process period, but what also is in that water holding it together yeah. to make the artificial snow packier yeah. or something. Right? And, th and this is typical of a lot of things with climate change as the, the, the solutions are a problem, uh, the so-called solutions, you know. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, uh, you have to some areas you have to pump in more water for agriculture, you know, before you didn't, or uh, well, you know, the list goes on. I mean, I have a long list, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you know, and to you know, it costs we call it ecosystem services, like you know, you lose well, even not even with climate warming, you lose the bees and they stop pollinating uh, your crops, uh, you know. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, you're gonna start hand pollinating. I mean, uh, you know, these are things that were done by for free by insects, and uh. And if the insects are gone, whether it be climate warming or pesticides or whatever, we've lost those which were free ecosystem services before, and now we have to pay for them. And you know, and often by paying for them, it also includes more environmental costs, let alone financial costs. Uh, you know, it comes down to people say, "Well, what's the cost of stopping climate warming?" You know, it's the wrong question. So what's what's the cost of not stopping climate warming that we should be asking? We just mm -hmm. asked the wrong question. Uh, it, it's completely, you know. We have a runaway problem now uh, that we wasted decades by saying, well, the science isn't in. Well, of course, the science has been in for decades, and anyone in the business knew that for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and and now, we're, now we've run out of options. I mean, we have far fewer options than we would have had 20, 30 years ago. So we have to, we have to move very, very quickly and more costly. And it is going to cost more. We have no choice. There's only one planet. We have no choice. Thank you so much, folks. We've been chatting with Professor John Small about artificial snow and environmental change through the lens of the Beijing 2022 Olympics. John, thanks so much for joining us here on Campus Beat. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. And welcome back. You are still listening to Campus Beat. With the eyes of the world fixed on the Olympics now underway in the Far East, a global gaze remains cast on Eastern Europe and questions remain about Russia and its intentions at the Ukrainian border. Here to chat with us about Russian posturing and motivations and where the Olympic Games is situated in Russia's geopolitical playbook is Dr. Thomas Hughes of the Department of Political Studies here at Queen's University. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's a fantastic uh, topic, even if it's somewhat troubling to, to have to say so. It, it has all sorts of dimensions that I think are, are extremely interesting. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. Now, can you remind us, Thomas, first about the current Russian activities on Ukraine's borders? Absolutely. Uh, it's somewhat difficult to do it in, in really short order, uh, <laughs> because as we know, there are a lot of different dimensions to this, this conflict. Uh, but in essence, there is a, a, a concern amongst a number of countries 
um, that Russia is uh, intending to take more direct political control over uh, at least some areas of Ukraine. Um, the potential also is that, that it's not quite such direct control that, that Russia is intending to try and, and draw Ukraine uh, a little closer to the Russian political orbit. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, this is uh, about a tussle uh, for the, the direction of Ukrainian politics. Uh, this is about trying to um, ascertain and shape um, r- the direction of, of Ukraine as to whether it, it leans more towards Russia, uh, allows Russia to uh, work closely with the, the country in terms of defence uh, and security uh, as, as a first priority, uh, and also uh, economically, uh, or whether Ukraine leans more towards uh, Europe um, and the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Ukraine is going to join NATO. I, I don't think that's uh, a realistic possibility. Um, but uh, if Ukraine is is more uh, NATO adjacent, if you like, something uh, akin to a Sweden, uh, for example, then, then that uh, can represent uh, a little bit of a challenge to Russia. So that really is is the, the core of the conflict here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now before bringing in the Olympics with Russia and China now being uh, superpowers in their own rights and uh, both sharing and competing for spheres of geopolitical interest in their respective border regions, where do Moscow's relations with China currently stand? Oh, that's a great question. And we've seen from the announcements uh, yesterday or or earlier this morning um, that they are presenting a very united front. Uh, They have done for uh, a little while. Um, In my opinion, the the actual reality of the closeness of that relationship is uh, not quite as is suggested in the media. For example, uh, a large uh, military exercise that happened um, in, in Russia's east was advertised as including a lot of Chinese participation. And whilst that was the case, um, the degree of connection between Russian and Chinese forces in that exercise was very low. In essence, they were just running in parallel, uh, whereas the the PR campaign suggested that it was a very close connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, the disconnect between those two uh, stories and two narratives shows that there is a degree of caution uh, in there. However, um, with the the Chinese statement um, that uh, Ukraine should not join NATO, and sort of as a in response the Russian statement that Taiwan is part of China, um, there is I, I think a sense that that they are working in lockstep um, at the moment. I personally mm-hmm. am not convinced that that is a long term um, solution for both of their objectives, but for the moment. I think they are in quite close conjunction. If Russia intends to invade Ukraine, as uh, much of uh, much media and pundit speculations suggest, in your view, Thomas, how might the Beijing Olympics uh, determine the timing of Russia's potential incursions? It, it is an interesting question because there is this perception that the Olympics is very much a, a sort of force for good, if you like, a, a, a place in which countries can meet without competing in the geopolitical sense. Um, and yet, of course, we know that that's absolutely not the case. And, and the Olympics is used as, a, as an aspect of the competition. I think the, the central reality is that um, the potential benefits and costs to Russia 
of invading Ukraine are such that the Olympics is unlikely to have a significant impact. If there is a, an opportunity um, that is there for an invasion, if there is some sort of, of connection between forces as part of military exercises that are going on, which enables an invasion, and Russia intends to invade, they'll take that. That's not uh, part of the Olympics, regardless of whether the Olympics happens or not. Mm -hmm. That said, um, I do think that there is something of a sense of, of uh, the Olympics historically being a tool that Russia has used uh, and other countries, but as Russia has used to demonstrate its, its strength. Um, that's part of winning an awful lot of medals. The fact that Putin was in China for the, the opening of the Olympics um, says a lot about how much Russia values the Olympics. And particularly in this case, as he suggested, values their relationship with, with China. So I could envisage a scenario where Russia would not want to interfere with the PR gain of these Olympics for China um, because of, of the connection between the two. But I imagine that that is marginal. Uh, I, okay. I think it would be very dangerous for um, the West to say, well, because it's the Olympics, Russia is not going to take the PR hit of invading Ukraine. I think to do that would be to invite action in Ukraine if that's what Russia in intended to do. Would there be a possibility then of damaged relations between Russia and China should Russia take action sometime in the next couple of weeks? Or is appeasement uh, to ensure uh, peaceful, uh, peaceful times during the Olympics in Beijing uh, be necessary. What do you think? It's 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 a really interesting question. Again, I what I would say is that given the conversations between Putin and um, Xi Jinping uh, in the last few days, I would say that they have an agreement about this. I imagine that this has formed part mm -hmm. of a conversation. I doubt that Putin has told them whether they plan to invade or not, but I think it would be part of the conversation. I don't think that the PR in the West around the Winter Olympics in China is as great as it might have been in the past, not least because the number of people who are in attendance at the Olympics because of the dangers of, of COVID, quite understandably, is much lower than it has been. So I'm not sure that the front page coverage would necessarily be everywhere uh, in the West um, of the Olympics anyway. And a Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is not going to um, knock that off the front page, if you like. I think the other thing that's important to note is that when we think of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, we shouldn't really think about Soviet-style thousands of tanks pouring across a border before rolling down the streets of Kiev. Uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine is likely to be much mm -hmm. more incremental. Uh, and in that sense, uh, it's more difficult to cover. It's more difficult to have the 24-hour media coverage of small-scale actions, which may or may not be from Russian forces. And if that's how the conflict starts, it doesn't change anything to mm -hmm. do with the Olympic coverage. And now just getting back to potential invasion, uh, would there be annexationist designs such as we saw a few years ago in Crimea? Or is this more mm -hmm. about posturing, for example, uh, the occupation of forces in order to uh, prevent Ukraine 
uh, from continuing its warming relations with the West and NATO? I think uh, annexation of territory is possible, um, but mm -hmm. slightly unlikely. I think that the annexation of territory, it would be um, the smaller regions uh, of Ukraine. I don't think it would be a full annexation of Ukraine as a whole. Uh, there has been suggestions that, that there are concerns about Russia doing this in other places, not just Ukraine, that there wouldn't be this invasion of Poland or Estonia or Latvia, but they could try and sort of nibble off mm -hmm. a little corner of it. So this is possible here. And uh, as I'm sure you know, that the connection historically between Ukraine and Russia is very, very strong uh, in a so social sense. So there is part of this idea of increasing uh, Russian territory back to where it should be. The problem with that, uh, and what makes it distinct from Crimea, in my opinion, is that Crimea is a hugely important region for security. Having the Crimean Peninsula is absolutely massive for, for Russian security. Taking and holding Donbass, the Donbass region of Ukraine, is not quite the same level of significance. So what Russia gains from, from having the Donbass region as part of Russian territory rather than Ukrainian territory is a, a much smaller step change. And it is a region which doesn't necessarily bring a huge amount economically. So that then falls back to this idea of how much does Putin uh, and his government value the, their PR victory, mm -hmm. if you like, of increasing Russian territory? How important is that for them? And that's very difficult to tell. Again, my, my personal position on this is that uh, Putin has now come so far in this conversation uh, and has come so far in, in pressing around Ukraine that it's very difficult um, for them to back down now without some form of concession from the West. Uh, with some form of concession, I think we will see tensions dissipate there. It's in nobody's interests to go to war in Ukraine. War, as we know, is uh, inherently immensely uncertain. So actually engaging in offensive action in Ukraine is a, mm -hmm. it's a huge risk for, for Putin. And I don't think that the, the gains from that would be seen as worth the risk. Um, so uh, the question then is what concessions can be given by the West without uh, losing face, without the West actually appearing to abandon its allies in Europe, which, which is just not mm -hmm. an option for them, understandably. So, but what concessions can be given uh, which would allow Putin and his government to claim some mm -hmm. sort of victory? Now, this might be quite simply um, the uh, Chinese support within the UN Security Council uh, absolutely um, laid down and confirmed that China is taking a, an essentially anti-NATO stance in European affairs. That might be sufficient. But I do think that it probably needs something uh, from the NATO side, which would allow both to, to keep face. Thank you so much, folks. In our last segment today, we've been chatting with Dr. Thomas Hughes, recent graduate from the Department of Political Studies about the question of Russia's relationship with China and the role the Beijing Winter Games may have on determining Russia's strategy at Ukraine's border. Thanks so much for joining us, Thomas. Good to see you. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.